is Unfamiliar Wildflowers Podcast, Episode 3, Little Lion Man. Hello and welcome to Unfamiliar Wildflowers with me, your host, Dr. Grace Tristan Davis. You are joining us for our third episode, Little Lion Man, where we'll be learning more about a rather controversial wildflower. This podcast is for anyone who, like me, is basically wild about wildflowers. We'll be touring wildflower meadows, hearing from other like-minded people who are making meadows, delving into the biology, ecology, and even the history and culture of some of the key wildflower species. And as always, we'll be joined by the late Professor Frederick Edward Hume and his series of books, Familiar Wildflowers, and from other meadow makers across the southwest of England. In today's episode, we'll be learning more about the marmite of wildflowers, dandelions, So this species is much hated by gardeners, but much loved by wild bee enthusiasts and nature lovers alike. We'll be on a spring walk with Dr. Ros Shaw from the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, learning about why dandelions might not be that bad after all. We'll then be time travelling back over a century and hearing from the late professor, Frederick Edward Hume, who'll be telling us more about this very familiar wildflower. I'll be answering some of your most frequently asked questions about weeds We'll then be learning more about bumblebees and solitary bees with Dr. Ross Shaw and how citizen science is playing a key role in pollinator research and conservation. So this episode is coming out in May and here in the UK we have something called No Mo May. And what's really interesting about No Mo May, where we basically decide and endeavour not to mow any of our lawns or verges or anything like that for a month, and we start to see what, what comes up and we start allowing some of these maybe weedy species to come up and flower and provide much needed nectar and pollen for our wonderful pollinators. Um, but some of these species that come up in Nomo May are around all year round and they can be a bit of a bane to, to gardeners. They can be a bit of a pain to anyone that wants to keep a neat and tidy uh, garden. But I want to really delve into the importance of this species as an, an early flowering resource for pollinators. So spring is a tricky time for all sorts of pollinators, especially those that need to collect nectar and pollen for their offspring and their colonies. Um, so things like primroses and snowdrops and violets um, and also red campion that seems to be flowering all year round, especially in, in Cornwall, they are super, super important. But there's one species of wildflower that is is always available but despite that in the spring it's super super important as well and it's continuously providing this much needed nectar and pollen so you only need to walk a few steps out of your front door or along the cliff path or along along your commute to work and there you'll find it this bright sunny rays bright sunny rays of yellow on a cold spring morning and that is of course marmite of the wildflowers which is dandelions. So I wanted to get a good, really good take on dandelions from an expert. So I joined Dr. Ross Shaw on a very special uh, citizen science walk. And I wanted to hear a bit more from her about what does she think about the this marmite, marmite of the plant world. I love both marmite and our unpopular flower species, the dandelion. 
I do live with a gardener who dislikes both Marmite and dandelions. But yeah, I'm a big fan of dandelions. Uh, they are quite an early flower to come out, actually. And I think they're just so important for things like solitary bees. Because in down here in Cornwall, they're nearly flowering all year round. And solitary bees do tend to emerge quite early. So most solitary bees, what happens is... Um, The eggs are laid the summer before in their nests and then they overwinter either um, some of them as a pupae, some of them actually as an adult. And then they emerge in spring uh, ready to sort of mate and start the next generation. And obviously they emerge at different times of year, but there are some really early ones that come out and there's just like not that much available for them to forage on. So dandelions can be really sort of key species for them. So quite often at this time of year, because there's not much flowering, and it is quite cold um, in the spring sometimes, you can find little solitary bees curled up in dandelion flowers, uh, which are really important for them. Um, Solitary bees tend to have uh, tongues that are quite a bit shorter than things like a bumblebee, for example. Um, So flowers which are more open, like a dandelion, are much more accessible for solitary bees, and they provide that really important early source of of pollen and nectar Uh, and then later in the year once they've flowered those beautiful dandelion clocks that you get to um, blow around your garden there actually can be a really important food source for seed eating birds like goldfinches so quite often you see goldfinches coming in and foraging on dandelion seeds which is like such a lovely thing to see in your in your back garden if you can cope with a few dandelions in your lawn So stay tuned, we've got more from Dr. Roz Shaw. She'll be telling us about solitary bees and she'll be telling us how we can be involved in a nationwide citizen science programme with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust to help monitor these really important pollinators. But up next, um, I want to hear from the professor and I want to see what he has to say about dandelions. So this series of um, podcasts are inspired by a series of books by Frederick Edward Hume uh, called Familiar Wildflowers, which was published in 1902. So these were a collection of nine um, books in the series, all with um, hand-drawn coloured plates that Professor Hume drew himself with wonderful descriptions. Um, I say every episode, wonderful flowery language and insights into these species um, over 100 years ago. I'm interested to see what does the professor have to say on actually a very familiar wildflower species. The dandelion. Like the buttercup or the daisy, the dandelion has been so well known to us all since the earliest childhood that we feel almost induced to follow on the track that is so temptingly laid down by the writer of an old botanical book in our possession, wherein he says, It is vain to describe a herb so well known. This style of treatment is a somewhat favourite one with our old author. Under the heading Doc, we find, Many kinds of these are so well known that I shall not trouble you with a description of them. My book grows big too fast. While of the woodbine, he says, It is a plant so common that everyone who hath eyes knows it, and he that hath none cannot read a description if I should write it. Tempting as this mode of treatment may appear when writing on our common wild plants, 
we must nevertheless endeavour to see if we cannot, without too evident a reiteration of well-worn facts, throw a little more light than this on various points connected with the subjects of our plates as they pass before us. The dandelion is by some botanical writers called the Leontodon taraxacum, by others the taraxacum dens leonis. The allusion to the lion's tooth is very palpable in all these names, dandelion being but a corruption or modification of the French don de lion, while leontodon means precisely the same thing in the Greek and dons leonis in the Latin. Why the plant should thus be associated with the lion's tooth has been the subject of several theories. One writer suggests that the name arises from the whiteness of the root when cut, but this is hardly probable, as the popular names of plants more ordinarily arise from some feature in their growth or some resemblance presented that appeals more directly to the eye than a peculiarity which can only be noticed on the uprooting of the plant. The leaves or the flowers will more probably supply the clue to the origin of the name, and it is therefore not surprising to find that we have two other theories to account for the origin of the name dandelion, one being based on the form of the leaves of the plant, and the other on the shape of the blossoms. It will be noticed that each part or ray of the flower head is long and strap-shaped, and that the end is notched or toothed the feature that, according to some writers, has earned it its popular name, the golden colour being in this case regarded as a further proof of the correctness of the idea. The plant may be found in flower almost throughout the year, though its golden heads of blossom are more especially conspicuous in the earlier months of summer. It is a perennial, and the long, tapering rootstock penetrates so deeply that it is a difficult plant to dislodge, while each wind sends the seeds flying over the countryside. In our illustration, the greater number of the seeds have been thus scattered. Before the seeds are fully ripe and ready for dispersal, the head is globular, and from its silky whiteness forms a noticeable feature. Each head of flowers and each leaf springs directly from the root. The plant is full of a bitter and milky juice which, when it comes in contact with the hand, turns to a brown stain that is rather difficult of removal. The young leaves, when blanched, lose much of their bitterness and are not altogether unlike endive in flavour, and two or three young leaves, even in the green state, form a pleasant addition to a salad. The roots are sometimes roasted and employed as a substitute for coffee, though from their somewhat powerful medicinal qualities some little care is requisite in their use. So I don't think much has changed in um, a century as far as the familiarity of the dandelion is concerned. So um, I, what I really loved in his description is, is how he's um, quoting from an old botanical book in his session. The, the phrases that the writer uses to just say this species is so common, you, no, I don't even want to waste my time describing it. What I love the most, so they um, refer to it as the woodbine, which is actually, actually honeysuckle. He said, it is a plant so common that everyone who hath eyes knows it, and he that hath none cannot read this a description if I should write it. 
um see did actually make me laugh out loud so yes it is super common but there are a lot of yellow composite species so dandelions are reasonably easy to identify the leaves are um, very serrated the latex that comes out when you um, cut the stem um, is very white then it goes sort of um, brown on contact with the air it's hollow um, so those things we know about about it that's how we can quite easily identify it um, but if you're just looking at a yellow composite head and you've got other leaves that are maybe a little bit different or behave a bit a bit differently when you cut them there's so many species that, that could be um, and so many species some species are you know amazing wildflower species that we want to get in our meadows like um, cat's ear and things like that so yeah, it's you know if you see if you see a yellow a yellow composite flower, it might not necessarily be dandelion. So get your eye in a little bit more. I think is an important point. But what I loved about his description when he talks about the 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 look of it to a lion, and obviously the petals are like a lion's mane. Um, um, but he talks about the sepals. So the sepals are sort of the the leafy like structure that kind of holds that the petals protects petals when it's in bud and then kind of holds the petals up when it's in flower and they were saying that those are like like teeth like lion's teeth which is a really wonderful description so leontodon there's many many species in leontodon not just dandelions so some of those species we we don't mind <laughs> we don't often mind in our wildflower meadows or our gardens like rough hawk bits and autumn hawk bits which provide lots of lovely nectar and pollen for pollinators so it's quite a diverse um, group of species, Leontodon. So it's not just the dandelions. So he talks about uh, dandelion root being a coffee replacement, which is interesting. Um, I think we're more familiar now with maybe chicory root being used as a coffee replacement. Um, chicory is in the Asteraceae family, so in the same family as the dandelions. But yeah, not Leontodon genus, so not as closely related. Um, so yeah, I think that's quite an interesting, quite an interesting insight that not a lot has changed in a hundred years as far as our um, our relationship with dandelions. Frederick Edward Hume attended the South Kensington School of Art, which is now the Royal College of Art, and he became a drawing master. In Marlborough College in 1870 and that's where he started on um, this series of books familiar wildflowers so these the first series um, first book of the series wasn't published until 1902 so this was a real labour of love and I think you can really tell that when you look um, look at the books and you look at the beautiful plates that he's drawn there's so much attention to detail and so much background and research and passion that has gone into it Stay tuned, we've still got frequently asked questions about weeds and we've still got to hear from Dr Ros Shaw. She'll be telling us about solitary bees and hear a bit more about the Bumblebee Conservation Trust and their Bee Walk Citizen Science Project. There's loads of solitary bees. There's about 250 species in the UK, but luckily for you, I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, and they have quite a range of sort of lifestyles almost, but a couple that I've I've seen um, using dandelion particularly is one of my favourites actually, which is the ashy mining bee. 
So the ashy mining bee is actually quite uh, charismatic. It's nearly the same size as a honeybee, and it has the the females have this beautiful sort of grey stripes with shiny blue black um, bodies underneath. So they're really noticeable. And what they do is they make their nests in the ground. So um, they dig little tunnels, which is where they they lay their eggs, and they lay their eggs um, and provide them with a, a ball of pollen uh, to feed the eggs when they hatch into larvae. And actually, you do sometimes see them, although they each have their own individual nest and they are they are solitary. They don't sort of work together. Quite often they nest in big aggregations, so you see lots of little holes, and I've seen them next to footpaths or actually in Cornish hedges sometimes, which sort of have that bare soil that that they need for nesting in. So I have to say they are one of my favourite solitary bees. Um, Another one that comes out reasonably early um, is the orange-tailed solitary bee, and that has... um, uh, yeah, as the name suggests, it has a little sort of orangey red tip to its its tail. Um, so yeah, they're really nice to spot. Uh, but yeah, there's a whole sort of range and variety of them um, who feed on different things. And some of them are sort of quite generalist and they're the sort of ones that you probably find on dandelions. And some of them um, are quite specialist uh, in the flowers that they, they choose to visit. So yeah, those tend to be the rarer, rarer ones. So I joined Ros Shaw for the first bee walk of the year in March. Um, It was early March. It was about six degrees. And I was really interested to hear from her. Why on earth were we looking for bumblebees so early in the season? Yeah, we're starting at this time of year because the bumblebee queens are out and about. So they'll be up nest searching. I've seen sort of the buff-tailed bumblebee queens out and um, I've seen reports coming in from around the country that people have seen tree bumblebee queens and also um, early bumblebee queens are are starting their search for a nest. So that is why we start bee walk um, this early in the year and then we'll keep going and as you go through the year you start to see the workers start emerging and then the sort of slightly later species their queens will start emerging and later on the summer you can see the the number of males and um, bumblebees that come out and they're always quite fun to spot because quite a few species have a the males have a yellow moustache which makes them like quite easy to to recognize um yeah and then sort of towards the end of summer the next generation of queens uh, are coming out so yeah it's just a really it's just a really nice thing to do actually um and quite often do it with company thanks grace so yeah it's it's great so uh, Bee Walk is great. It's um, it's a citizen science project run by the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. And what we do is we go out monthly between March and October and survey bumblebees on a set route. And it's no coincidence that our set route today starts with a cafe, ends with a cafe and goes along the beautiful coast path in between. Yeah, so we walk it quite slowly and we basically count the bumblebees that we see. One of my other favourite things about Bee Walk is um, you, you don't tend to start it until 11 o'clock in the morning uh, because that's when the sort of bees are up and about. And also um, you can only really do it in good weather, so when it's warm and sunny. So it's a really nice thing to do. We've got a website, www.beewalk.org, um, and you sign up. Uh, select a route that works for you and then you walk it like I say once a month and enter your data into the website it's all quite easy and we also the Bumblebee Conservation Trust runs um, ID courses around the country and we do have some online resources as well if you're not very confident with your bumblebees but it's a great way to become more familiar with them and they are quite an accessible group for a, for an insect and the other thing that's really great about it is 
that it means we're contributing to to you know a really important survey about what's happening to our insects so um bee walk's been going for quite a few years now uh, we've been doing this particular bee walk since 2013 i think and it's giving us a really interesting like long-term record of what's happening to our bumblebee populations which is showing some you know really interesting and sometimes sort of quite scary results so um the drought in the last summer um you can see that that's had quite a dramatic impact on, on some of our bumblebee species so i'm just going to look at frequently asked questions about dandelions when we have a think about weed control but there are some sort of homemade recipes that are supposed to work to kill dandelions. I think there are recipes online. So basically, household vinegar works very well on the young weeds. If you keep spraying it, it should dry them up and kill them. So if anybody has tried that at home, please let me know because I think that sounds really good. So yeah, so I think number one it would be to to leave to leave weeds if you can. Number two would be to use a physical. A physical barrier like a weed mat or wood chips or something like that to kind of try and control them although we all know that dandelions will not be controlled and they will push through even concrete and then thirdly this spray um, I might give it a little um, experiment and maybe let you know um, next episode how I got on with some vinegar homemade vinegar spray but basically trying to avoid chemicals and chemical weakers as much as possible because they have negative impacts on on nature in general so so what is the hint and tip of this episode i think with with weeds and especially with dandelions like they are really really important for nature um there's going to be something important that needs it so if we can have little wild areas in our gardens or in our parks that we've set aside to let go a little bit wild and a bit full of weeds then that can make such a huge difference, you know, and we all we have to do is do nothing. So thank you for joining us for our third episode, Little Lion Man, of Unfamiliar Wildflowers. Our next episode is all about woodland wildflowers. So next episode, we're teaming up with the Meadowmakers Forum And I've got a guest presenter, Tony Whitehead from the RSPB. He will be interviewing George Pikerton, who is a woodland ecologist with a passion for wildflowers and an expert on woodland wildflowers. So we'll be focusing on one particular species, and I'll give you a little hint now. As characteristic a spring flower as a snowdrop, the primrose, or any other of the well-known and welcome harbingers of the coming floral year. As always, we'll be joined by the late Professor Frederick Edward Hume and we'll be answering more of your questions about wildflowers, about weeds, about woodland wildflowers. So please email us your questions at info at wildflowercollective.org.uk. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast um, on whatever platform we're listening to. And we've also have a newsletter for any updates, so you can subscribe to that. And there's more details on our website, wildflowercollective.org.uk. So thank you to Dr. Ross Shaw, the Mulberry Conservation Trust, and the late Professor Frederick Edward Hume. And thank you to you for listening. Mm-hmm.